0: My name is Fritz Hager, I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'll confess I'm a surprise pastor today, because Ross has a surprise COVID quarantine. I know many of you have had to deal with the disruption in life that comes with this pandemic, and so we're dealing with that today. And I'm looking out of the crowd uh, at what obviously are super Christians, a cold, cold, rainy day in the middle of a pandemic no disrespect to anybody who's watching online but man it took some real commitment to get out in this nasty weather today so uh, I am glad to see you Uh, I'm glad that you've joined us and glad that you're part of Bethel today you know there are some events that seem to change everything some events so large so significant and so historic that the world seems to be different after they happen. Days like December 7th, 1941. I wasn't alive then, in case any of you were wondering. That's the date of the attack on Pearl Harbor, our entry into World War II. July 20th, 1969. I was alive for that. That's the date that man first stepped onto the moon. September 11th, 2001. A day I'm sure you all remember. Those are the kinds of days you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when you found out about the news. March 13th, 1998, Friday the 13th, was one of those days for me. It was the day my first son, Jack, was born. As I looked down, I held those little hands for the first time. Everything seemed to change for me. Felt the same thing every time one of my kids was born, but that time, the first time, was when I realized that I was really a dad. Jack came unexpectedly, he was eight weeks early, weighed four pounds, two ounces, no family had time to gather there, no balloons, no party, just two scared parents, not knowing what the roller coaster of the next month in the NICU was going to be like, much less the next 21 years of raising him. But now, almost 22 years later, the events of that day have radically changed my life. Can't imagine what life would be like without March 13th, 1998. And every day since then has been different because of that day. But odds are, March 13th, 1998 is just another day for you. Nothing significant not in your personal history book, your world didn't change like mine did. Which is why March 13th, 1998 is not in your personal history book or the history books that we study, but it is special to me. Maybe you have a date like March 13th, 1998 in your life. The day you can look at when everything seemed to change. Maybe it was the day you were married. Maybe it was the date of the birth of one of your children. Maybe it was the loss of a loved one. Something that changed everything. Our passage today is about a birth that was incredibly significant. For the two scared young parents, for the few who were told about it at the time, but really for the whole world. And everyone who has lived since, whether they know it or not, every day has been shaped by that day. Our passage today is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, and it's the familiar story of the birth of Christ, the birth of Jesus. And before we get to the passage, I want to warn or caution us, and I'll confess that I don't have the same wonder that same surge of emotion, the tears in my eyes that I had on March thirteenth, 1998. I've gotten used to being a dad after 22 years. And for me and for maybe many of you, the story of the birth of Jesus is just a little too familiar. Maybe we've gotten used to God with us after 2,000 years. We've tamed the story to be more like some of our favorite Christmas songs. Or maybe you just view it as a historical event, something that you believe happened a long time ago, you're aware of, but that reality has not profoundly changed you the way March 13th, 1998 changed me, or your big day changed you. So, as we read this familiar story, my prayer is that God, whose Spirit is with us today, would give us eyes to hear this story with fresh ears, to experience the wonder anew, and, as Mary does, treasure these events in our hearts. Passage is divided into three sections. Verse 1 through 7 is this taxing trip. Verse 8 through 14 is a terrifying announcement. And then verse 15 through 20 is a time to wonder. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke, the taxing trip, the text says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town." Luke begins the account by setting the stage of world history. He begins with the rule of Caesar Augustus, who issues this decree. He calls all the citizens to prepare for collecting taxes. Imagine how much fun April 15th would be if we all had a four-day walking trip once a year. Maybe our taxes would be a little lower if it were, if it were that difficult. I don't know. Uh, But registering for the census was a painful act, not only because of this inconvenience, the four-day trip, but it was a reminder to the nation of Israel that while they were in the promised land, they were not enjoying all the promises. They were living under the thumb of Rome. They were not free. They were under the rule of a pagan power. In verse 2, people have debated Luke's history Luke, the historian, yet they say he's missed this date. Quirinius isn't the governor when Herod was alive, when Jesus was born. The word first here is probably better translated as prior. Luke meaning that would be then that the census that took Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem was the one that Caesar made prior to the one he made when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. By citing Caesar's decree... Luke uses what's often here, he, he uses heavily in this passage is contrast. Here, the readers see these human decrees, however powerful, fall within and under the divine decree, which had already ordered the birth of Jesus. Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, was affectionately known by his subjects, I'm sure, as the savior of the world. He had brought peace to the world except for this part of Israel at caesar's palace he made his decree for the purpose of collecting taxes and he thought it was the supreme exercise of his free will flexing his own human muscle but he was just a tool in god's hands the events that follows are not owing to caesar these are god's events It's the sovereignty of God that is on view here contrasted with the power of Caesar. The most powerful man in the known world is simply a pawn in the hands of God. God is going to exert his rule and God is going to get the glory. And what looks like an act of Caesar is actually a perfectly timed move of God. God had already promised that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. And that promise would be fulfilled all because a ruler wanting to raise some money. All things are under God's control. All movements are by his hand. This is a great reminder that this is not our story, that this is his story. This is his plan from the foundations before time. Which means that before he spun the heavens into place, before the earth was formed, before the sun and moon and stars are cast into space, before there was such a thing as time, before there were 24-hour days, God ordained that day. God created what he would become. He ordained the day his son would enter and bring joy to the world, like the Spencer family reminded us which means God only knew the hearts of every man and every woman that would make up the genealogy of Jesus. He also knew and directed the hearts of every man and woman that would make up the genealogy of Caesar. There's no heart, no person, no family, no event, no series of events over which God is not sovereign. He's not the chess master staying one or two moves ahead of us operating independently He is the sovereign author of this story. So that was the taxing part. Now the trip. And Joseph, verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there... The time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Lots of interesting things in this text. I'm struck by how different God's ways are from our ways. Joseph travels to Bethlehem since he was the in the line of the King of David. The text doesn't say why Mary went. She didn't have to go. It's likely because she was very pregnant, wanted Joseph to be with her when the baby was born. We often look for God working in the miraculous. We want to see the big splash, the obvious sign, but far more frequently God works in the providential. Caesar's census was for him, he thought, and yet God had providentially used it for his purposes to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Can't imagine what it's like to have your wife riding on a donkey for four days before she gives birth. Serena's had six kids, and uh, there were no donkeys involved with any of them. Most readers assume that the couple arrived in Bethlehem just before Jesus' birth. Joseph with a wife going into labor while she's on this donkey, walking through town trying to find a room. However, the text says, while they were there. So it's more than likely that they were there for some time before Mary went into labor. And one of the striking things about Luke's narrative is how simple it is in contrast to how great the events are. So if Jesus were born today, Mary and Joseph would have Instagrammed the gender reveal. This is before sonograms, but they knew they were having a son. They could have been the first gender reveal. They would have created a special website or maybe a Facebook group to collect all the pictures and videos, created a gift registry, hired a videographer or photographer to discreetly and tastefully record the great event. But that's not the scene that Luke gives us here. Here we have a teenage girl with the man who was to be her husband, alone. And traditionally we have believed that this, this manger or feeding trough in which Mary laid the baby Jesus was in a cave underneath a house because there wasn't room in the inn which likely isn't a hotel or a motel with donkeys, place to put your donkeys. Like we'd imagine, it's likely a guest room, usually upstairs in a family's house. And it's the same kind of room used by Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper. Text merely says there was no room in that room, likely crowded with other family members who'd come for the census as well. So they wrapped him in linen and laid him in a manger. God has entered the world. Peace between heaven and earth has begun. You know, I found it interesting, maybe foreshadowing, there's no room for God in this town. It's fitting that this rejection and exclusion from society was only just the beginning. 33 years later, Jesus would be wrapped in strips of linen once more. And in both instances, things changed drastically because of these events. At Jesus' birth, three days after his death, just when the night was the darkest, just when those who loved Jesus the most, his parents at his birth, his disciples at his death, just when they began to wonder if God had forgotten them, angels came to announce a change. From the taxing trip, now to the terrifying announcement. Verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy with whom he is pleased. Shepherds. Really. See, it doesn't shock us like it should. We've just had this royal birth narrative and suddenly scene changes to a totally unexpected and to the original readers maybe a little inappropriate context. So why didn't we go back to Rome? That's how chapter 2 started. We started with Caesar. But no, we went with the shepherds. These guys, absolute bottom of the barrel from a social order standpoint, if you're going to announce a royal birth, they are the last ones you'd go to. Not a single social media influencer in this crowd. You know, that's really not how I would have done it. Guys who couldn't vote or be counted as witnesses are now the first witnesses to joy entering the world. And how do they respond? They are terrified, which is always the way it's been when God's glory comes into contact with our darkness and our depravity. We respond in fear. text says they were filled with great fear. fear, literally frightened with a great fear. It's in the passive, but if it was active, it would be translated as they f- would flee in terror. It's been that way since almost the very beginning. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. But then they decided to take matters into their own hand. And when God shows up again, they are terrified. And it's been that way ever since, all throughout the Old Testament. Verse 10, fear not, behold, Every time you see an angel encountered, the first words they say are, Fear not. I assume they are very scary when you see them. I've never seen one. An angel appears, and this is the first preacher of the gospel. This is what the text means I bring you good news of great joy. It's a terrifying announcement because of the messenger, but the news itself is great. Notice it's good news of great joy for all the people. This is for everyone. The whole world is gathered by Caesar to be counted and taxed. And this good news is for all the people. For unto you is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Unto you. It's personal, it's individual, it's intimate. It's for all of us, from the lowest to the highest, the weakest, for the nobodies. He was born for you. You know, this is the only time Christ is called by all three of his names. Savior, the one who rescues and brings life. Christ, the one anointed by God to restore peace to men with God. The Lord, the one who is God and who will reign. If one angel left the shepherds shaking in their boots with fear. Imagine what a heavenly army did. This is what the word host means, an army, an army of angels. All heaven broke loose. Let's think about that for a second. Think back before COVID, if you can remember that far back, when you could actually put thousands of people in the same space. Thousands of angels, not socially distanced, but filling the sky, singing with one voice. You know, the closest experience we probably have is a football game where people actually know the cheers, maybe an A&M game for some of you Aggies out there, where you have 50, 60,000 people all saying something in unison except these are angels in the sky shouting glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those in whom he is pleased. The multitude's message is a little different than the first angel. He said the good news was for all the people. And the army says the good news is for those with whom he is pleased. Both messages are true. The gospel, the good news that Jesus is Savior, the Christ and the Lord, that message is for all people. But that message only brings peace with those with whom he is pleased. It takes the rest of Scripture to fully understand that we can't earn or perform our way to a place where God is pleased with us. We know through the Gospels that the Father was pleased with his son Jesus and that through faith in him, because he paid the price for our sin and represents us to the Father. And because of that and our faith in that, he is pleased with us. So let's go back to the story. I'm sure once the shepherds got over the shock of this terrifying announcement, It kind of became more of a terrific announcement. So what happens next? Shepherds run away, post the video to YouTube. Now is the time for wonder. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us As it had been told them. You know, it's interesting. This is the last time an angel preaches the gospel. From this point forward, the honor and the responsibility is given to men. First, to these shepherds, the first human preachers of the gospel. They are given the message. The good news is theirs, not the priests, not the religious leaders, not the pastors, not the rulers, not the celebrities. The nobodies on the hill watching sheep. And why was Jesus in a manger? It's God's providence. It's how the shepherds would know which baby they were looking for. They didn't have GPS. There were likely many babies born recently. But they could find this one because he was in a manger. I'm sure they knocked on a few doors before they found the right place, which I'm sure caused a little bit of a stir. Maybe that's one of the ways that God spread the message of what had happened throughout that town. You know, what's amazing is that although we would, things we view as an inconvenience, as inefficiency, as taxes, the travel, you know, why didn't God just pick somebody who was already in Bethlehem? All these circumstances God uses for His glory. So the shepherds went into the city with haste. And they found Mary and Joseph and Jesus just like the angel told them. So what did they do? Did they keep it to themselves? They made known the saying that had been told them. They did what the angels told them when they came and saw. And now they're going to go and tell, which is really the evidence that they believed what the angels told them. The Christ, the Savior, the Lord had come, not just in a mist, not in a cloud, not in a burning bush, but in flesh. God with skin on. And this changed everything, not just for them, but for us too. Look at verse 19. It tells us what Mary did, which is a contrast with the shepherds she treasured these things in her heart. She pondered them. She weighed them. She meditated on them. She believed them. She treasured or valued them. You know, it's hard for us to do sometimes, to slow down, to ponder, to wonder, to store things in our hearts. Maybe it's because we're too busy, especially this time of year. Maybe these truths are too familiar, but for whatever reason, maybe in this COVID season, this time of great disruption, great inconvenience, when we can't go and do the things we want to do when we want to do them, maybe that's one less excuse for us. Or maybe we are storing things in our hearts. We're just storing the wrong things, listening to the wrong things, listening to everything but God. The voice of the world, the voice of Netflix, of Hulu, of YouTube, all of which I watch, instead of the truth of God with us revealed in Scripture. See, I don't think Luke is saying either be a Mary or be a shepherd. I think we're supposed to be both. We're supposed to treasure and tell. Because we treasure, we tell. Supposed to have worshipful hearts overflowing with the good news. You know, I think if we were honest with each other, we need more shepherd in us than most of us have. In a Bible church, we often do a pretty good job at the treasuring part, often better than the telling part. But the truth of the good news, the truth that God rescued us by becoming one of us, that truth is too powerful to keep to ourselves. It's too transforming for us and for the world to keep it a secret. You know, when you meet me, it won't be long before I tell you about March 13, 1998. Not that exact date. But likely early in the conversation, I will tell you that I'm a husband and a father of now six kids. I'm quick to tell you that good news for me. Good news for my kids on some days. But I'll confess, I'm much slower to talk about the birth that is good news for everybody. But here's the even better news. The message today isn't just try and do better. Add this to the list of things we know we're supposed to do and usually don't. Eat more green stuff. Exercise more often. At least those are on my list. Don't know about yours. But because Luke is 2 is true, because God is with us is true, Not only did the Son of God become human, but the very Spirit of God lives inside of us. In that way, God is more with us than he was for those shepherds. That very Spirit living in us shapes our affections. It changes our hearts. It opens our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is And it empowers our service. It guides us to truth. And that is good news for us. And that changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you. Grateful that in your sovereignty brought us here today. In your sovereignty, you sent your Son to rescue us from our sin while we were helpless and before we loved you. Father, we're grateful for the truth of your word that tells us that you are with us tells us that your Son understands what it's like to be human. That your Son came and did what we could not do so that we might have peace with you. Father, I pray that that truth would be real to everyone here today, everyone listening. Father, that we would treasure that good news in our hearts, that it fill us with wonder. And Father, that that would transform us, that that would be so life-changing for us that we could not help but share it with those around us. And Father, that that would be something that would bring great glory and honor to you. So Father, I pray that you'd orchestrate our lives and our relationships to give us the opportunity to tell folks about this birth and how this has changed everything for us it can bring peace to them. pray all this in the name of Jesus the Christ, our Lord and Savior, and the power of the Holy Spirit that is God with us.